0: You're listening to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, professor of Christian ethics here at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University.
1: And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, an author, speaker, and apologetics professor also at Talbot School of Theology. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: We're here with my longtime colleague and dear friend, Dr. J.P. Moreland, recognized in the last couple of years as one of the 50 greatest living philosophers today. So quite, quite an honor and well-deserved with a litany of publications and speaking opportunities that would take us probably the length of the whole podcast just to list those. So we're really glad to have you with us. He's an expert on uh, basically all things apologetics and Christian philosophy and we have a number of questions, JP, for you today. Most of what you have written has to, recently has to do with uh, the soul and the existence of the soul. Um, you've you've written a lot about how, especially how the the neurosciences today uh, intersect with our teaching on the soul. Uh, why is it so important that we talk about the soul today, given what the, the neurosciences have? Uh, basically assigned most of the functions that the scripture describes as pertaining to the soul they've just they've assigned to the brain what's so important about the soul today well it's really good to be with you both
2: and uh, thanks for having me i think I think there are three reasons this is important. I mean, number one, you've already mentioned it. The Bible's pretty clear that there's a soul, and if neuroscience has shown that there isn't one, well, then the Bible's false. We're in trouble. So one would hope that biblical teaching would win the day eventually, and I think it is. I, secondly, if, uh, if I'm just my brain and my body and nervous system, then I don't have free will, because my body... Hmm. Uh, is completely governed by the laws of nature. It's a physical object, and it does what it does according to the natural law and whatever hits me. I'm like a complicated rock, and I think third, uh, if there's a soul that makes understandable and reasonable that there may very well be life after death, statistics have shown that as more and more people have become materialists about the human person. Uh, there has been a lowering of belief in life after death, and I think it's important for for that reason. So those are three things that I think matter.
1: How would you describe the state of philosophical debate today over the existence of soul? Is naturalism still reigning, or do you see some progress being made?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, Sean. Um, I do see progress being made. I mean, for for decades. Uh, The worldview of uh, scientific naturalism, which we can clarify a little bit later, but it's basically the physical world is all there is, uh, was the dominant worldview because there wasn't anybody to oppose it. But uh, it's become increasingly obvious, for example, that consciousness just isn't physical. And so more and more naturalists have had to kind of fudge their views and say, well, everything's physical but consciousness. And it's uh, even becoming more reasonable uh, to believe in a soul. I just uh, finished uh, co-editing a book that will be coming out with one of the leading academic presses in the world, Blackwell, and it's Mm -hmm. going to be called The Blackwell Companion to Substance Dualism. And we have 19 Uh of the top materialists uh, debating 19 of the top immaterialists, dualists, on 19 topics. And uh, this is going to show that dualists aren't afraid to engage. And that uh, belief in the soul and consciousness is a is a live option today. And if that's true, naturalism is false because it can't explain where the soul and consciousness came from if you start with matter.
1: That's exciting to see. Thanks for your contribution in this area. Oh,
0: you're welcome. Yeah. Let me let me go back to a statement you made just a minute ago about uh, naturalism and how it has difficulty accounting for uh, free will. Uh, that that would seem to be a pretty substantial problem. That if that if we are just physical biological organisms then there's no space for free will how do the naturalists the uh, you know the the folks who believe that you know what you can see and feel and touch and ascertain with your senses is all there is how do they avoid becoming these strict determinists about our free will that's a great question scott there are really two
2: strategies one is that they become what is called compatibilists which means they change what it means to be free. You're free if you can do what you want, but your wants are determined. <laughs> so it's really not freedom at all. Uh, so what they do is they make freedom consistent with you being completely determined by your genetics and your brain chemistry and your input. The other way to go is what Daniel Dennett did. And he said, look, uh, nobody, there is no such thing as moral responsibility, and there is no such thing as freedom. That's completely gone, given materialism. So why do we hold uh, child molesters responsible, but we don't Mm. hold alcoholics when both of them are equally determined and not responsible for what they did? Well, he said the answer is that it's socially useful if we punish child molesters, uh, and it's not socially useful if we punish uh, uh, alcoholics. And so we punish one just because it's uh, pragmatically helpful, but nobody, at the end of the day, he says,
0: really, if we're going to be honest, is responsible for anything they do. So, so if, if you press the question to him, what, what exactly makes it socially useful or helpful to punish child molesters if there's actually no, you know, no philosophical basis for anything like moral responsibility? He would have absolutely no answer to that
2: because he would have no basis for any kind of objective evaluation of anything. Plus, to be honest, if he's right, that he holds his view about this because he was determined to hold it. He didn't choose the view that he holds because it's rational. He was determined by his genes and his brain chemistry to hold to this position.
0: And that's kind of a bad place to be. So just just so our listeners will know, explain a little bit about who Daniel Dennett is well, and, Daniel, and why he matters. Yeah,
2: Daniel Dennett is one of the leading uh, 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 four new atheists. Uh, he's a very well-known and highly regarded philosopher that teaches at Tufts University. He is an absolutely angry, vicious critic of Christianity, and he has defended a Darwinist materialist worldview his entire career. So he's made an influence on a lot of people, and he needs to be answered. J.P., if you were going to give, say, one or
1: maybe two arguments that you find the most compelling, philosophically speaking, for the soul,
2: what would they be? The first one is that uh, my brain and my body are divisible, and they can become as a percentage. You can have 60% of a brain or 60% of a body if you cut off 40%. And so my brain and body are divisible, but I'm not. I can't be 60% of a person. Uh, I'm an all-or-nothing sort of thing. I'm either there or I'm not there. But if I'm there, I'm a 100% person. I can lose functioning, but I can't lose personhood. And so there's something true of me. I can't come in a percentage and be divided that is uh, not true of my body and brain. So I can't be my body and brain. I've got to be something else, and that's a soul. I think the second thing. Uh, I've, already, uh, I've already mentioned is this whole problem of free will, so we won't go over that again. But if we are responsible, and we all know we are, my wife reminds me that I'm responsible for my behavior on a regular basis, <laughs> that's true uh, only if there's more to me than my brain and my body. I think the third thing is that there is something that is at least possibly true of me that isn't even possibly true of my brain and body, and that's disembodied life after death. Even people who don't believe in life after death, when they hear about near death experiences, will acknowledge that I don't think these are true, but I'll admit they could have been. They could be true. They might be. So they're willing to listen to a program to see what the evidence is. But they'd never listen to a program that said, We have found square circles in Montana, because that's <laughs> not even possibly true. So at least I'm the kind of thing that might survive the death of my brain and my body but I'll tell you one thing about my brain and body they they can't even possibly survive in a disembodied state so there's something true of me that's not true of them and I can't be them I must be an immaterial something So we don't even have to look at the evidence yet for near-death
1: experiences, although there's some compelling evidence for them. Just the possibility in itself is an argument that the soul is distinct from the body.
2: Yes, and we have to distinguish that from an argument that there's such a thing as life after death. Uh, You use this argument to show that there's a soul, if if I could possibly exist outside my body, but that's not enough to show that there really is life after death. Remember, my argument was about the soul. Now, I do think, as you pointed out, the resurrection of Jesus and the widespread evidence for near-death experiences puts beyond reasonable doubt that there is life after death. But as you mentioned, that's a different argument. Yes, we just established the possibility, and that's all we need.
1: So, you have mentioned free will a few times, and I find that compelling as well. But what if somebody just says, yeah, we don't have free will? Do you make an argument for it? Do you just appeal to their common sense? Where would you go from there?
2: Well, I would, uh, I, I would use an example. I would say, what if a scientist came into your room in the middle of the night and put an electrode in your brain and went across the street with a computer terminal, and all he needed to do was to type something in, and it would cause that electrode to vibrate, and it would determine you to do whatever he wanted you to do. So you get up and you're walking down the street and he wants to hit a guy in the face that's coming, getting ready to pass you and he hits enter, hit and face. That causes the thing to vibrate and your arm moves and punches the person. Now, that is not an example of where the person whose hand hit him was responsible. The scientist was responsible and we all know that. Why? Because the person didn't choose to do that. Well, if a person's going to say don't believe in free will, well, then he can't be responsi- He can't hold me responsible for believing in it because I didn't freely choose it. But the guy knows better than that. He, uh, I think, uh, the, it's common sense that everybody knows that they've acted responsibly in their lives. So I would uh, appeal to that common sense intuition too.
0: Yeah, I think I'd, I'd probably add a little bit to that. What what would it be like? if we lived in a world where there was no such thing as criminal justice or moral responsibility for things. I mean, it seems to me if the naturalists are right, we're at at the lord of the flies. You are absolutely
2: Um, right. It's complete might makes right. It's chaos. And by the way, you notice that that's where the political process has moved. There is now a search for gaining power over others rather than the right to rule. And that's because people, many, have given up on free will. It would be utter chaos, Scott, and nobody would be responsible for anything.
0: Now, you, you've written before that, uh, you know, that this is not actually a new idea. That uh, if there if there is no God, then moral responsibility is in really big trouble. Nietzsche had a lot to say about that. Indeed, but three, two, three hundred years ago. Yes, indeed. Spell that out a little bit for our listeners.
2: Well, you have to ask the question, um, if if there is an objective law that's, that's true and that it imposes duties and obligations on us, where in the world could that come from? It can't come from a cloud of electron gas. I mean, if you start with the Big Bang and don't ask where that came from, and the history of the world is the rearrangement of matter into larger and larger, more complicated chunks of matter, then at the end of the day, you're going to end up with... Rearrange matter. (laughs) You're not going to end up with what ought to be the case. You're going to only end up with what is the case. The only way there can be a moral law is if there is an objective, good lawgiver and who has a will to impose a duty on us. So that's the rough and ready
0: argument. Okay. So what would you say to people like uh, the sociobiologist E.O. Wilson? And others who argue that uh, you know morality doesn't come from any transcendent God. You know it's 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 built into our genes. We get our moral standards as a result as just as a part of our evolutionary adaptation and its advanta- and it, it provides an advantage to individuals and communities in passing on their genes.
2: Well, he doesn't know that. He's a scientist. He's dealing with a field in which he's not trained, ethics. Uh, the other problem is he's committed that what's called the genetic fallacy. That's faulting something for where it came from or verifying it for where it came from. Chemistry came from boiling toads in urine, but that doesn't mean chemistry's false. That's the genetic fallacy.
0: Well, oh, uh, don't don't sugarcoat yeah, that description. Okay, okay. <laughs> <You
2: can't> cut <laughs> the do you tail really on that if you can. <laughs> but um, just if, evolu- if uh, morality came from. Evolution that doesn't have anything to do with whether it's valid. Uh, that's a separate question. And uh, the, the truth of the matter is that if uh, if morality came from sur- a survival instinct, then our instincts aren't true. They're just useful. So at the end of the day, the only thing evolution can give us are useful behaviors and beliefs,
0: not true ones. Okay. Let me take that one step further. Uh, and apply that to rationality. Uh, wh- how do you account for, you know, our rationality being reliable on an evolutionary scheme of things? Because if 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 rationality is nothing more than something that is socially useful, uh, shouldn't we be sort of s- skeptical about particular our higher our higher level rationality, uh, which? May have nothing to do with our adaptability. Well, this is spot on,
2: and and C.S. Lewis long ago raised this. In recent years, Alvin Plantinga has raised it. But what's interesting is one of the best known atheists in the world, Thomas Nagel, has actually raised the same point. He wrote a book called oh, The Last Word and said, "How could there be such a thing as rationality?" He said, "Postmodernism kills rationality because everything's relative." The Christian theist, he says, has a perfect answer to the question. There is a rational God, so in the beginning was the Logos, not in the beginning were particles. And that Logos, or rational being, created us with the same kind of rationality to understand the world he made. He said, I don't like that answer. I'm not arguing against it. I just don't want there to be a God. Because I don't want to be told what to do. He said it's called the cosmic authority problem, and he's honest about it. He said the evolutionary answer is the cure that killed a patient. Because evolution (laughs) formed our body parts and our behaviors and our tendencies to believe in light of four things. Reproducing, um, uh, getting away from danger, um, feeding, and fighting. And you don't have to have true beliefs to do that, especially true beliefs about abstract concepts like goodness and morality and a, do I have a soul and things like that. I mean, if a, if a person consistently saw predators that were big as little and food that he wanted to eat as little, even though it was big, and as long as you ran away from the right thing consistently, he'd, be, he'd survive whether or not he saw the, the object accurately. So you're right. For there to be objective moral laws, values and
1: duties, it seems to me there has to be free will, as you talked about. There has to be a moral law giver outside of human race. Yes. But third, there has to be a sense of human value and dignity. Can naturalism in in principle account for this? Are you seeing any movements to give a naturalistic explanation for intrinsic value, or is it simply
2: impossible? It's impossible. Um, One of the leading uh, legal and moral scholars in the last uh, 60 years, Joel Feinberg, taught at New York University and at the University of Arizona, said that without the image of God, and this is in his book, Philosophy of Law, without the image of God, the idea that we have equal rights is just uh, indefensible. Because he said, in order for us to have equal rights, we have to have two things in common. Number one, we have to have something in common that's equal. Number two, whatever that is, can't be something trivial and silly. It's got to have gravitas and weightiness. It's got to be have preciousness. But he says those kind of concepts are very much at home in a theistic view of the world, but it makes a naturalist very uncomfortable and a little queasy when he starts thinking that uh, beings are precious. What is that about? And so you can't ground um, equal human rights uh, uh, based on a naturalist view because we're not equal in any way. Uh, except the image of God. So that has to go by the window. The other thing, some people try to say, well, when matter reaches a certain level of complexity, intrinsic human value just emerged. And, and my response to that is, that's like uh, pulling a rabbit out of a hat without a magician. Um, that's just magic. Uh, saying that something emerged is a name for the problem. It's not a solution. Mm-hmm. I want to know, how can you get something from nothing? How can you start with matter, rearrange it, and get something totally different, namely the property of intrinsic value from brute matter that didn't have that property to begin with? JP, let me shift gears a little bit here. You are just
1: as passionate, just as articulate, just as driven as when I remember hearing you as an undergrad, probably mid 90s. What keeps you going? There's
2: there's no other game in town. Uh, following Jesus is uh, the best uh, path, the the most reasonable and the most likely to be true approach to life uh, that there is. I mean, if you can show me a better way to go to approach life, I'll I'll adopt it. But I'm kind of suspicious by now. I'm almost seventy. And I've pretty much looked at Jeez, what's out there.: You're really old.. I am, no, thank good you. Night. I feel, I, <laughs> I'm feeling an awful lot of love right now in this room. But
0: <laughs> Yeah,
2: I just uh, I, I don't know that I've got any other hope than to cling to Jesus and, and, to, and give him whatever I've got. and I want to finish well and die well. That's kind of honestly my goals now. So that's why. And, uh, you know, people say, well, how do you keep from getting proud? I mean, the answer is, number one, I have to live with myself. Uh, that's a problem. Number two, have you ever seen the dude we're serving? I mean, he's just a little smarter than the rest of us. He's, I think he's a little bit morally better than I am a little bit. And so, so you know, it's kind of hard to get too big at it when you look at Jesus. I think that's a problem.
0: You, you have had a great legacy not only in Christian philosophy but also in popular apologetics. Uh, you've spoken – all over the world to hundreds of thousands of people yes. on popular apologetics. And you know, it's really common today, I think, to hear people say, well, you know, no, nobody has ever argued into the kingdom of yeah. God. They're loved into it. Right? Um, how do you respond to that statement? And then how do you see the role of apologetics in our culture today? Boy, you guys are asking
2: such good questions. Can people be persuaded and argument into the kingdom of God? The answer is absolutely yes. I've done it many, many times. In fact, in Acts 17.4, Paul provides evidence for Christianity. And you know what it says in 17.4? It doesn't say, and some of them were converted. It says some of them were persuaded. And what that means is they understood the argument and, doggone it, they bought it. They became Christians because they were convinced and persuaded that the argument was a good one. Now, look, I'm never going to go evangelizing and giving arguments for the faith without asking the Holy Spirit to work with me. I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. So uh, I would certainly never go it alone. But can you persuade people? I've done it hundreds of times, and the New Testament says that you can do it. I personally believe sometimes that 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 response, we need to love them into the kingdom. Is an expression to cover laziness and an unwillingness to really study and try to learn your do your homework. Could not not everybody C- certainly can be. It it can
0: be. So I, I yeah you can persuade people. Paul did it himself. Now, I think sometimes what people mean by that uh, when it, you know when it's not a, a front for laziness is that our our evangelism and our apologetic needs to have a relational component to it too, which I, I know you would. A, Completely a, a, agree with. Agree that. with.
2: Completely agree with that.
0: Um, you know, I think I think maybe maybe your best contribution was your book "Loving God with All Your Mind." Uh, I've told you that before. That of all the things you've written, that that might actually be the most, you know, the the best thing you've done to, search, to serve that. the kingdom. Um, why is loving God with your mind so critical? And and what does that involve?
2: Well, Dallas Willard said, "Don't you think following Jesus would require us to be thoughtful?" And he didn't mean courteous. Uh, We're following the smartest man who ever lived. Don't you think we should be thoughtful about life? Uh, Jesus actually commanded us to love God with our minds and the great love commandments, and so it would be disobedient not to. And I think finally, I want to see all of life. From my discipleship, and I can only do that if I try to think as carefully as I can.
0: Why do you think that so many people fail to do that?
2: I think that this is a long story, but in the first two decades of the 20th century, there was a shift about religion from it being a matter of the mind and the heart to it being solely a matter of feeling and the heart. And I think that that began to carry on, and so fewer and fewer Christians uh, cared about the mind. And and in fact, in some denominations, as a result of this shift, pastors didn't have to know anything and be trained to be pastors, they just had to feel a call to be a pastor. So think about this, to teach uh, 7th grade English literature, you had to know something to be a pastor of a church you didn't have to know anything you just had to have had a good intention you had to feel something mm-hmm. and feel called it's a both and, of course but i think that's what happened what
0: are some of the things that churches could do to promote the the life of the mind for the men and women that they and kids that they serve
2: first thing they have to do is they start needing to put posters all over the church that don't use the word faith but use the word knowledge or reason Come, let us reason together. Um, Always be ready to give an answer for the question. We can know God from the things that were made. So start putting posters that celebrate uh, the cognitive aspects of Christianity instead of simply the faith aspects, which is a both-and. That's the first thing, because that will create values, I think. Uh, Secondly, I think there need to be some sermons that actually don't apply to your personal life but apply to cultural issues that we're facing and try to help people learn how to think about these important cultural issues. And I, and I think the third thing would be to have Sunday school classes that deal with certain topics and that invite people uh, to come and learn how to think about what's going on in our culture.
0: Yeah, I wonder if we also need to to – Make it clear to the men and women we serve in our churches that when they come to faith, they're not only committing themselves to a person, but also to a set of ideas, a set of lenses through which they view the world.
2: Yeah, Scott, I, I, you know, I'm so tired of hearing that Christianity is a relationship with a person. That's Oh, that's true. But it's a lot more than that. It is. It, it's a system of thought, and it, it does involve the world of ideas. You're at,
0: it's a both-and, again, not an either-or. Great. Well, we've been just delighted to have you with us, Jay. Thank you for taking your time to be with us and for, as always, your insightful comments about the intersection of Christian knowledge and apologetics and philosophy. You notice I didn't say Christian faith. I I said Christian knowledge, culture, and philosophy. You are the man. I can be taught.
2: You can. And Scott and Sean, it's been such a joy being with you brothers. Love Love you to death. Thank you for the privilege.
1: This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. J.P. Moreland, and to find more episodes, go to www.biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thank you for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.